Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to one of the most philosophical and pragmatic strength and conditioning coaches I can think of, John Kiley. John has a wealth of experience and knowledge, having worked in athletics and both international football and international rugby, and he is currently working as the senior lecturer in performance and innovation at the University of Limerick. This episode with John will take a very mature and all-encompassing look at periodization, a topic that he has written about academically and is well known for. I have no doubt this will be an engaging and stimulating episode for you, the listeners. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Just before we get into today's episode, if you're an S&C coach, physio or sports scientist and you would like a platform to share your ideas, then Informed Performance is taking article submissions from those of you who would like to share your thoughts and professional insights in written form. We would like to make our platform more of a community and by doing so allow some practitioners to share their content with our audience and benefit from the traffic or perhaps the viewership that that involves. If this idea appeals to you, then please go to the contact page on our website where you can contact us or message us via Instagram. Now, without further ado, you're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and today's guest, John Kiley. John, welcome to the show, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. No, my, my pleasure, like I said. And I remember a number of years ago, my my personal strength and conditioning mentor, uh, Dave Rowland, uh, referred to you as his mentor figure. So I guess through strength and conditioning lineage, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to get you on the show. Okay, you're kind of putting me in the grandfather bracket there. So, <laughs> but, uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, Dave is a great guy uh, and I always enjoyed working with him. Um, just in case some of the listeners haven't heard you speak or read your work um, prior to this, would you be able to sort of break down what your background is through to the current day? Well, I guess like a lot of your listeners, it, you know, being involved in in sport was my passion from very early on. Uh, I had a pretty long but uneventful uh, career in in sports as a as a participant. Um, I started coaching young. I was coaching around the age of 22 or so. Uh, a few years after that, maybe 26, 27, uh, the local university started a sports science course. I signed up for that. Came out of that kind of early 30s. Uh, straight away, I got a job within the Irish sports system. Stayed there for a couple of years. Moved to Edinburgh. Uh, did a S&C Masters over there. Back to Ireland couple of years working different uh you know athletics association rowing a couple of the ngbs a few of the clubs moved to the uk then as uh, head of snc for uk athletics uh, stayed with them uh, up until uh, the london games and then kind of the old story my partner was locked into a job in ireland i was living and working in the uk traveling over and back Got a job in the UK university, but they permitted me to do it from my back kitchen in rural Ireland. So, so that's what I did. Um, in that time, uh, you know, I occasionally, or as much as possible, I, I took contracts within sports. So, I uh, worked a few Six Nations and the 2015 World Cup with Irish rugby. I worked the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia with with Egypt. Work with it with a couple of high level people then as a kind of consultancy um and i guess that brought me up to this year uh this year i relocated fully back to ireland from the uk 
and I've now started working in a professional doctorate in innovation and performance within the University of Limerick. Uh, and it's it's a it's a distance learning course. Course, it's set up for experienced practitioners uh, who are already working in industry, whether that's education, health. Uh, but we have a, a sizable population working in sport, where sport, you know, La Liga, Syria, EPL, SPL, NFL, NBA, folks from all over the place. Um, yeah, so so that kind of keeps me in touch. I feel. Uh, with what's going on and uh, yeah I really enjoy it and every day is spending a lot of time talking online but talking to really interesting people doing interesting things with interesting ideas and then I just help them through that that professional doctorate journey so yeah so that's me at the moment. And are you involved in a lot of research and, and studies at the same time while you do that? Well I think it is something that um I'm not going to say it's hard. I'm I'm not digging a hole, you know. It's I'm, I'm not laying a road, but uh, there's a lot of uh, as they're all uh, high level folks. There's a lot of uh, kind of mode switching. So uh, I work with a couple of people in professional sport who were interested in decision making. So that's one thing. But then the next person at the next meeting might be someone who is interested in monitoring. And then it becomes very technical or very analytical so there's a lot of that kind of task switching but you know i kind of enjoy that so yeah i'm i'm happy um i think uh occasionally pretty regularly if i'm honest i i go to clubs talk to different people do workshops do conferences with practitioners and coaches so so yeah, I, I do my best to keep one foot in the very, very practical world and one foot in the kind of university environment. But at heart, I'll always be a coach. I'll always be a gym rat. Yeah, that's my bread and butter as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a very stimulating um, you know, project and, and culture to belong to while you do that. Yeah, I, well, look, I enjoy it. I love it. I really got lucky and, and yeah, I'm enjoying it at the moment. So I first heard you speak um, at the European Speed Conference um, many moons ago, and at the time you were one of one of your sort of keynotes was about stress and adaptation from memory, and you know parking that but not completely as a topic. Um, my first awareness of your published written work was when you published your periodization article, um, which is you're going to you know hopefully make up a large part of this conversation today. Um, for me, reading that, it, it was a very, from an S&C perspective, it was a really holistic um, natured article, I hope you don't mind me saying, and, and it made me step back and analyze how I kind of structured training from that perspective. Would you be able to, I guess, like bring us into this topic from the sort of, I guess, like how you see periodization and the sort of origins of how you experienced it as a coach to then maybe thinking about it more holistically, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I guess my my introduction was as a, a very young coach, devouring the periodization literature and buying into it completely. You know, I was the Hitler youth of periodization. Um, so, but you know, over time, you you kind of lived the life uh, as an athlete yourself, as a coach, and facts appear and. Uh, it, it's not, I guess my opinions on periodization, there was a long germination period for those. I went from totally buying into this as kind of everyone in the culture was doing at the time, you know, um, Soviet dominance in Olympic sports, Soviet literature, a secret of their success, buying into that. And then you were getting this very acceptable logic and this really useful template to tell you okay i know this is a complex problem but here's what you do do it this way divide it up into time have set objectives and what you can could consider very much a um, conventional planning template or perspective it was i guess intuitively appealing and then it was 
there was the semblance of, well, this is very logical and rational. And everyone culturally bought into it. Some people still buy into it, I guess. For me, it was, oh, you know, let me just say that, like, the key, um, the key pillars of periodization is the assumption that training outcomes are predictable. I know you could add in rehab outcomes, RTP outcomes, that they are predictable phenomena. In other words, that if we do the same training, we'll get not exactly, obviously, but we'll get broadly the same outcomes. Uh, the same outcomes in terms of the direction of the outcomes, like we'll, we'll both get stronger and we'll both get stronger by X amount. Synchronization needs as a kind of a justification for time framing that. Uh, and then in a lot of articles, they'll talk about, um, this is the correct length of time for, for a, a, fa- a training phase or block. And then there'll be a phenomenon termed residual training effects. And again, then you, you get some science mentioned there, uh, normally citing some, some older Soviet re- literature or some, some authority figure, you know, as Zatsyarsky, Viru, Matviev, Verkashansky, all the, you know, all the old Soviet kind of legendary names. And, and that's in a sense, that's kind of the sleight of hand that periodization theorists have delivered to the industry. It's, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had this template? Well, here's a template. Here's the kind of logical, intuitive sense that it makes because it conforms to how we think about good planning in other domains. Uh, Here's some science. Please don't look too hard because it's extremely dubious. And so we've buried it in some very old references. Uh, and, and that's the kind of sleight of hand that has, in a sense, uh, sold it, I think, to our culture, that there is a, there is a way that we can solve this big complex problem of what do I do with this person to make them better? It's like, well, here's what you do. Okay. You set your own objectives and timeframes, but you can take these logical steps and, it's that notion of predictability that's rarely mentioned overtly, but it's built totally upon the platform of assumptions that say that training outcomes are predictable phenomena. Now, if you measure them, they're not. You know, if you measure them at an individual level, that totally falls out. Last thing I'd mention, all of, all of this periodization logic made a lot of sense when it was when it's first started to emerge, uh, in fifties, sixties, um, it made sense because at the time the way we looked at human health was through a very biomedical lens, and by bi- biomedical, what I mean is, if you have an illness, well, there was some pathogen that caused that. If you have pain, then there was some structural damage. Eradicate the structural damage, you eradicate the pain. Eradicate the, the pathogen, you eradicate the illness. Mental illness, well, that's because of there's some neurochemical imbalance or something like that. So everything has a kind of, you know, one gun, one bullet. This is the cause of that. This drives this. And the last thing that's important with the biomedical model is it separates mind and body or brain and body. And the function of brain and the, the purpose of the brain and the purpose of a body, it distinguishes those. The brain is the, you know, the, the, the master controller and the body just follows the brain's orders. Now, you jump up to, you know, early 2023 and none of that kind of platform of assumptions stands up. None of it. It's all clearly not the case. The biomedical model although we're still dealing with it, with the legacy of it in conventional uh, medical context, it's, it's still, you'd be hard pushed to find uh, contemporary science across the health, scientists across the health sciences that thinks that, oh yeah, the biomedical, the biomedical model is solid r- r- rationale. But within sports science context, we're still, and you know, you don't have to delve too far to get this, uh, read any of the journals, any of the papers, 
X, the training programs, there is this basic assumption that physical adaptation, physical performance is driven by physical training. And it is the extent of the physical demands that you place that will drive adaptation. And they'll do that in a predictable and proportionate way. And that clearly isn't the case. So the problem is, well, okay, if periodization doesn't work, even though we might really want it to work, how can we uh, make it better? How, how, how can we move the industry forward? The last thing I'd say is people tend to get divided up into kind of tribes here in terms of I'm a periodization advocate, I'm not a periodization advocate. And I don't think that's the way for us to move forward. And, you know, even the term periodization drives kind of loyalties and it either gets some people's back up or it gets some people on board but it's just a word it's just a kind of a it's it's a historical term that is still with us me personally if i'm working with a coach i don't care if they use the word periodization or planning or adaptive planning or whatever it it doesn't matter what really matters is what are the pros what are the processes and uh, that you go through to devise your training plan? What are the processes you go through to uh, extract valuable information? And that can be objective information from whatever technical kit you might be using, subjective information from, from players, from athletes, from other coaches and other staff, uh, and how you can collect that information, uh, internalize that information, and make evolving decisions that recalibrate to changing context, changing athlete perceptions. Because that's kind of what we have to do and what conventional periodization, if you read the literature, hasn't done. It has had that sensitivity to to change. And everything we do from a you know neurobiological perspective we are changing all the time. So how can we adapt to that change in such a way that's A, pragmatic for us as practitioners, uh, and B, providing the optimal bang for buck for the you know athlete, client, patient? Hmm. Have you, I'm, I'm just curious, Have I don't know if your experience of this is similar to mine or not. I feel like I've noticed less people speaking about various periodization systems in recent years than maybe 10 years ago but i feel like there's more of a kind of what gets measured matters sort of construct now where people talk about far more granular things and how they influence those granular metrics that they can test have you have you noticed a sort of a slight shift or in the conversation or um, or more weight being put into that versus you know how you kind of dose and plan the training. Yes, I, I think there definitely is. I think there is suggest there are less people talking about periodization in its kind of conventional terminology. There is much more adaptation, certainly in professional sports of monitoring equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So there's much, there's a lot more measurement going on. Uh, in some domains, you think there's there's a lot of data being collected, but not sure how it's been utilized. Uh, but, but, but yes, I think there is a movement towards being more, being more data-driven uh, or adaptation to the individual. Uh, I think that the, from my perspective, the, the kind of the, the platform upon which conventional periodization was built it has crumbled, kind of beyond repair. Now we can keep the word, and there's no problem there. There are still some holdouts who suggest that no, you know, this kind of predictive pre-planning in chunks way is is still the the way to go. But I think that that percentage of the population has shrunk dramatically over the past five, 10 years. Do you, do you think there's, I mean, I remember when I first started in strength and conditioning, it was very much, you know, pre-season conversations would be, 
players coming off a, a rest and an off season into if you're in like an NGB model, maybe like general preparatory, or you might, uh, other people might say that, you know, there's a greater variety of exercises and they start with hypertrophy strength into plyometric power driven programs, you know, as they get closer to a competitive season. Are you seeing a different style of planning now happening as a result of the technology or the sort of data driven advances in terms of how people kind of map out, okay, this is where we are time-wise to, you know, in the off season, perhaps, and this is the, this is what we need to get through training wise into the season. Are you seeing a difference? Yeah, possibly not a dramatic one. Um, I think that people are more informed, but I think change is really slow, and change is slow because you know we're all we're human. We're we're, we're creatures of habit. There's a lot of that background logic of, well, this is the way we've always done it and we had success this year or that year, you know, doing this or I got a successful athlete to an Olympic final doing this. So, I mean, there's a lot, there is some resistance to change. Um, and I think it might, you know, it's it's tempting to say it's it's variable according to culture and it's variable according to, sport perhaps and i'm thinking specifically in team sports um now the other thing i would say is that this isn't kind of a rant against periodization it's just uh it is okay we thought that was pragmatic it was definitely useful for it was useful for coaches it reduced the extent of the complexity of the problem that you were trying to think about because it gave you a map and, you know, when you're lost, a map is a really good thing, even if it's not actually a map of the territory you're lost in. It's just psychologically, it's something to grasp onto. Um, I think things are improving. Things are clearly improving. I think there's, there are, you know, the, like the big change has probably been the explosion in, in tech. It is, for me, that's a really big problem as well. And I think it's, nearly causing as many problems as it's solving at the moment. Uh, it's just the, the, the evolution of tech and how it's been used or not used. I see a lot of big organizations collecting lots and lots of data, but not really doing anything with it, only producing a report at the end of the season. So how much of it has been actioned on, I'm not sure. And it, again, it varies sport to sport quite a bit. Um. Yeah, so I, I I think there is a new breed of coach coming through that is aware of the um, the complex nature of the task in front of you, where you know where the task is to optimize performance or increase injury resilience or let's get this person rehabbed as efficiently and effectively as possible. They're all really complex tasks. They don't lend themselves to simple templates they you know so you can i often think of a conventional periodization structure that might be something that might be pragmatic if you're working in one of the big universities and you're dealing with 150 athletes or you know half a dozen different squads you have to take shortcuts you have to make assumptions you have to make a decision on well what do i think would be the best for the most people most of the time type approach I guess, but a lot of the time, the logic, that periodization logic kind of bled into, for example, how you were working with the Olympic level track athletes. And all of a sudden you're seeing a, a complete lack of sensitivity around, well, hang on a second, we need to be adaptable here. The athlete keeps changing, risk keeps changing, performance opportunities keep changing. Shouldn't the plan change in accordance with those? Uh, yeah. Okay, how did that sound? No, that made a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm really glad that you said that this isn't just, you know, uh, an episode where we bash periodization, essentially. Um, I'm always aware that there may be um, newer or fresher eyes or ears on this episode. And, and I don't want to kind of dismantle the construct that people are wrapping their head around in real time. Um, from a sort of, and, and this might be horribly context specific. So if there's any you know, cases or examples that you're comfortable with, then, then fantastic. But I guess, you know, if you're given an athlete, and this is very broad, if you're given an athlete to work with um, in, in the first instance, and you've got to look at them, assess them, and then 
you know, plan, progress and, and periodize, quote unquote, their training. Is there is there any kind of fundamentals that um, or, or philosophies that you kind of always stick to or that you that you try to apply to all all training? I, I know that's very absolute and broad. No, it's a, it's a good question. It's putting me in the spot a little bit, but it's a good it's a good question. <laughs> so, no, so most of my work over the past twenty years has been with um, athletes at risk or players at, at at risk. So, you know, it's it's the last World Cup, or you have an injury and we've a week to our first game, or this person keeps breaking down, but we really need them. Those type of things. So that's what kind of a I've spent most of my time and, and most of my, my brain space. Uh, and in direct answer to your question, though, is there any kind of essential go-tos that I do really early in, in that process or how do I start my, my thinking? One of the things that might surprise people is the first, pretty much the first thing I would do, obviously I would talk to, you know, depending on sport, the, the, the head coach, the positional coach, whatever it might be, um, get as much information from support staff as, uh, as I could. But I'd also talk to the athlete or player and see what their beliefs were and what their expectations were. And this isn't a thing I would have done in the earlier half, like the first half of my career. It would just be, okay, yeah, of course I'll talk to the staff. Of course I'll talk to the medical but then I'll come up, you know, in the kind of cave, the coaching cave, I'll come up with the best plan. Whereas now I think for a number of reasons, I have become more aware and more, I've tried to build into my processes this, what I think of as an inescapable fact. And that is that the interventions that work are the interventions that the athlete or player believe in. Now that's not something you ever seen a coaching text or a, you know an SNC coaching course? Uh, but I think there's there's clear evidence for me that 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 is the case. That if the athlete doesn't believe in what you're doing, if they don't trust you, if they don't trust the process, if you're not respecting their objectives and their goals, if you're not internalizing their feedback or their comments in terms of you know, I, I don't really like that. That I feel exposed when I do that versus, um, yes, look, I did this before. I, I really bought into that. Even though you might not agree with their statements, I think it's really important to build them into your decision-making processes. I'm not saying let them make the decisions for you, but you need to wrap them into your decision-making processes. And I guess the and I'm not sure if I'm going off on a tangent here, but the reason I would say that is that, again, going back to the biomedical model, the biomedical, like training theory evolved under the remit or, under, or through the lens of the biomedical model. Biomedical model assumes physical stimuli drive physical adaptation. But I would suggest that that's not the case, that it is more physical stimulation in the context of what does the athlete believe? Does the athlete believe this is a, a stress or a help? Is this something that makes them nervous or fills them with confidence? Is this something that they believe in or think is useless? Is this something that they feel will move them towards their personal long-term goals or something that's just an obstacle in the way they just got to do it, but it's not going to do any good for them? So and I, and I think that that's something really fundamental that in 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 the world of physiotherapy I think they're much further along in terms of understanding that and leveraging that within work processes but in the conditioning and a lot of coaching contexts we haven't really tuned into that yet we're still thinking through a biomedical framework we're still thinking that it's physical training that directly drives physical outcomes instead of well yes there's a physical signal but that signal is amplified or dampened by all these perceptions cognitions emotions 
because they're what regulate the background um, the background foundation upon which those physical stimuli are overlaid. And it's the two of those together that will dictate how the player athlete adapts to that particular training intervention. So that was a, that was a long answer to a short question. No, I think it, you make really good points. I guess one of the things I'm wondering is, you know, training is not predictable, as you said. How do you kind of decide when you're going to prompt the, the, the program change? You know, we've got this mess of um, placebo and psychosocial influences that we can have mixed in with, you know, various scientific metrics and data points. How do you kind of blend it together to decide this is where the athlete's at right now and this is what I need to do next? Well, I think it is a triangulation between there's an information gathering stage, which is, okay, well, who, if there are other key players in this, what's their perspective? And then what's the athlete player's perspective? Obviously, they have to be weighed against objectives and timeframes, and that will set your kind of threshold for uh, what level of risk we're prepared to tolerate. You know, if it's Olympic final is in a week, we got to do something. Risk level is high. Okay, we just need to be aware of it. But it, but it is a decision making factor. Um, <clears throat> I, you know what I'd say, and I, I guess a lot of folks won't like this, but I wouldn't have a a set process. I would obviously have my biases in terms of I think this is what works. I would I would have kind of my beliefs in terms of well we need to survey or we need to establish uh, what the key players in this belief b- believe. Um, I think the I used to spend a lot of time, you know, I'm definitely a kind of a movement nerd and I spend a lot of time worrying about the real specifics about exercise design. And I think now in hindsight, I overdid that. I totally prioritized physical and how it looked and where exactly the athlete was feeling the, you know, the the muscular stress slash tension. Um, and now I would try and I would balance that in terms of I want to have a technically perfect um, session, intervention, training phase, but I also want it to be something that is it that that there is a belief within the core group that yes, this is the best way. And I think what that opens up is. It's planning isn't these are your sets and reps, off you go. Or, you know, we'll do this for four weeks and then we'll change to this for four weeks. It's neither of those. It's like a, a possibly a hard discussion up front. Uh, it doesn't have to be hard. Um, but there's a discussion about, okay, here's our best guess of where we're going to go to check that this is what we're going to do after two weeks, four weeks, whatever it might be, depending on research, resources, contact time, uh, available tech, other considerations. So there's some kind of personalized plan, but the plan isn't here's what you're going to do. It's okay. You've said you what you want this in the program. We'll, we'll accept that. We need, we feel that you would benefit from X, Y, and Z. They're gone into the program. We'll reevaluate after, you know, we do two sessions of each. Then we plan what exercise is going to fit in that particular uh, category or, or, or niche. So it's still planning. It's just it's a multidimensional plan rather than a, here's what we're going to do physically under the assumption that this will get you this outcome because that clearly doesn't work. And it's it's clearly kind of uncalibrated to reality and it drives wasteful training and it, it drives injury risk uh, excessive fatigue at the wrong time. So I think it's worth us thinking about. And, and, and your question is nearly searching for, okay, well, tell us what to do. And obviously I'm not the person to tell anyone what to do, but I can tell you how I think about it and a different way, different maybe cognitive tools that you could use to solve the inevitably unique problem in front of you. Yeah, and I guess, um, you, know, you know, conversely, there is actually some data-centric tools that can actually be beneficial to this more kind of fluid model of decision-making where, you know, as an example, like I think Chris Toombs, when he came on talking about velocity-based training, said that 
someone's one rep max can have a swing of about 15% on any given day neuromuscularly. Um, so I guess with those things in mind, you know, the athlete in front of you is different each day. And actually there is times when the more data centric objective tools that we have can actually give us a greater appreciation of where the athlete is holistically on any given day for how we then might reorganize training for a moment of time. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, let me see, the example that's coming to my mind is uh, four sticks is a pervasive tool across sporting cultures at the moment in all the, the, the major professional team sports. Uh, and I think, uh, as you mentioned with Chris Timms, if you have enough serial data on a player, then you may well find um, data where a deviation outside of their normal habituated bandwidth provides you with useful decision-making information, as in know whatever metric is a little off it's outside your your normal range maybe we need to take closer order where closer order could be let's let's change the training plan for the session or i'm just going to talk to the athlete and just see if they're feeling feeling anything here so i i think that that type of sensitive metric is really useful now (laughs) here's the tension um one of the biggest problems in conventional medicine at the moment is overdiagnosis where you know people are plugged into a load of tests you find all kinds of things wrong with you uh the doctor tells you all the negative results and then you are kind of amplifying and driving a really amped up nocebo effect where for me a nocebo effect you know it's a real phenomenon it's your thoughts, your emotions, your cognitions, uh, your perceptions change. That changes your neurobiology. That changes how that changes your injury risk. That changes how well you'll adapt. Um, so yeah. So I, I guess I'm going the long way around. So just to summarize, overdiagnosis is a problem. I think collecting metrics is great. I think we need to be careful because there's so many ones that are insensitive there. And, you know, if you collect things, especially trying to establish risk, the more you collect, the more risk you'll find. How are you communicating that to the athlete? So I think, again, we're back to, the, well, you know what? This isn't a complex kind of, um, this is a complex problem. There's no off-the-shelf easy answer. I need to think about what metric will work for this environment for me. Uh, for, for for that player in this context, then I'll need to think about, okay, well, I need to be careful in my communication. I need to manage that well. Um, and then, yes, if we can tick those boxes, then I think, yes, metrics can provide exceptional decision-making information when they're sensitive. A lot of the metrics we have out there, especially in the sports world, they are it's kind of like a company have found a bit of tech that measures this and then they big up the importance of this and then they sell it because we're so desperate to cut down on injuries. But I, I, and I think that there's a lot of products out there that haven't been scientifically evaluated or, you know, to any great degree of certainty. A couple of studies here and there and the whole industry is jumping on it. And, you know, it's happened a number of times over the past 10 years. And you go into, I don't know, English Premier League club, and you'll see machines thrown up against the wall because they were the fads of five years ago, and now they're not being used. Or, well, we collect the data because, well, we've always collected the data. What are you doing with the data? We kind of just collect it and leave it there, and maybe every now and again we'll have a little cursory look at it. And, And, you know, again... It seems like I'm painting a kind of depressing picture. I don't mean it like that. (laughs) But what I do mean is they're the kind of faults and flaws we we tend to slip into. And obviously there's islands of of best practice. But um, but yeah, let me pause there and just, you know, if you want to redirect me. No, not at all. It's It's a very complex and broad topic. Is there anything that as we kind of progress through this conversation on periodization, is there anything that I haven't asked you or is there any points that we're missing or that we're not able to cover with the current trajectory? I don't know really. I, 
I guess if I was to draw a line under the thing I'm thinking about probably the most at the moment is legacy of that biomedical rationalization in professional sport, that assumption that um, that it is the extent of the physical stimulus that directly drives adaptation. Well, and my contention here is, well, no, it is the stimulus, but that's overlaid on a neurobiological background. And that background can be fertile arable land, or it can be, for example, if you're squirting out stress hormones, you are not going to adapt. You are going to be more at risk of injury. So it's in a sense, if you were to boil it down, it's like it's not the training you do. It's the training you do and the extent of the belief, trust, faith, um, contextual factors that prompt your subconscious to to um, to release the biochemicals that create a, a productive landscape for you to overlay that stimulus on. And that's what adaptation is. It is a combination of what you did and the resources that are being allocated for adaptation. It's not just it's not just what you did, but in the certainly in the sports science literature, that is all we talk about. We were kind of, and you hear lots of people say this were were addictive information gatherers, um, and I think it's quite hard to then sit down and I guess artistically structure how do you go about your day? How does that? session get designed not just from a technical standpoint but communication information gathering from what the athlete thinks about it and and how do you kind of piece that together i think that's that's the artistic part of it really that that requires the most experience well, well yes and i guess you will see coaches that do that exceptionally but yeah it is something i think they're probably their, their persona is probably predisposed to that. And I, I guess if you were to create the perfect coach, then you would have that persona, that aura, that um, ability to communicate clearly in a way that inspires players, because that's really important. And I, I said coach, but it could be, it could be SNC, it could be physio, it could be anything. You know, it's that clarity of communication that the player can being in an environment, interacting with you, get the sense, the deeply embedded, unarticulated sense that this is good for me. I am in a good place. I am safe. Yeah, Yes, I need to work. I need to work hard. But this is the right environment for me. Versus, oh God, there's that guy rabbiting on again. I don't know what he's talking about. I hate these training sessions. So you could have, if we were to do the little experiment and, you know, you I don't know, cleave my DNA in half and create two me's right now with the same history, put me through the same training session. But one of me, you, uh, the session is explained by someone who is clear, obviously wants the same end performance goal as me, realizes that, uh, that I may have certain limitations or whatever and accepts them. And, or the other identical twin, someone doesn't communicate so well, or they seem kind of careless, or they seem a bit offhand, or you get the sense that, you know what, he doesn't really care, Tuppence, for me. You will have a different neurobiological background on which you overlay that stimulus. You will respond and adapt in a different way. And that's not something we've really captured in our theory before. And yeah, but I think it's critically important. We spend so much time on design, structure, working out rep ranges, et cetera, et cetera. When maybe we get a lot more bang for our buck if we just spent a little more on the interpersonal stuff, on the creating a good context, creating a right information environment, asking opinion a little more, getting perspectives a little more, trying to understand things through the, the player athlete's eyes a little more. Is this a, you know, obviously it's been a little while since you wrote the article and, um, you know, people like me are, are still encouraging you to talk about this topic today. Is this still a, a broad topic that you, I guess, academically research and think about 
Um, yeah, so, uh, and thank you, Raf, for giving me a nice nudge there. So I am lucky that I work with, the, like, I'm, I'm obviously interested in periodization um, and I'm writing a piece on it at the moment, but, you know, I'm always writing something on it, but it just takes me a long time to write those things. But I work with uh, I work with one doctoral st- student, uh, Ketchy Anadika Danes. He's at the German Sports Institute or University in Cologne, and he's studying periodization. And then I work with somebody that uh, some of your listeners might know, Martin Bingeser. Uh, he runs uh, HMMR Media. Uh, he does a lot of work with Vern Gambetta and the Game Network, and he's a you know I think maybe ten times. Swiss hammer champion and an international coach. So he's doing a professional doc- doctorate with, with me as well on the topic of periodization. And both of those guys are deeply embedded with the, in the history of it. They know where it emerged. Uh, they know the kind of clunkiness and how it emerged in terms of uh, uh, lots and lots of training figures and just, okay, let's average these and figure out on average, how long it takes and you have to do to get to this level. And let's do this with these kind of whatever it was, 10,000 Soviet athletes, and then we'll have figured out the right way to do it. And again, all those kind of generalizations made a degree of sense when contextualized through the biomedical model, but through conventional science and not even contemporary science, the science of 30 years ago, it just doesn't hold up. You can't make those type of generalizations in any shape or form or to any degree of accuracy. Did I answer the question? Yeah, and I guess it's very useful to still have people looking at this topic just in the sense that the way that we practice changes every few years quite significantly, I think, anyway, in the, in, in the applied setting. Well, I'll tell you, what I would say is, I, and I don't mean to sound like this is all new, because. You know, I, I'd read a lot of coaching history and you go back to the 50s and there were coaches who were just tremendous interpersonal communicators. And that may have been why why they were great. I, I've never, you know, and I, I often try to, I, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of what you would think of as very successful coaches, you know, world FIFA World Coach of the Year, uh Olympic gold medals, Olympic silver medal type coaches. And it's very hard to, their training theory doesn't, never aligns. You know, their beliefs never align. The only kind of commonality I can ever find between them is when they were having success, they held the athlete's attention. They had a good relationship with the athlete. The athlete could see that they were a coach on the up and that they were a coach that could help them realize their long-term objectives. And I think that's that's kind of the gold. That's And it's not something we ever articulate or think about or talk about. But it's if you have a coach that, that can lead you, I've seen coaches, uh, you know, and obviously I'm not going to mention names, but Olympic gold medal winning coaches, and you'd have to say their training theory it might be right, but it disagrees with everyone else's. Um, but but I've never seen it work the other way. I've seen plenty of coaches who were intellectual, organized, but they just didn't have the ability to lead the athlete or to inspire the athlete or to, you know, they, they didn't provide the athlete with anything that the athlete could lock onto and say, this is the coach for me. I feel confident that they're going to move me forward. I've seen it where, you have a coach that you'd have to question technical, tactical, but they were inspirational. I've I've never seen it where it was okay just to have all that tech, technical excellence, but no persona or no um, nothing that the athlete could just grab onto and inspire confidence in in that athlete. I think you see it medically a lot with. Uh, particularly with physio where you might I mean I can think of numerous people where this probably applies a few very you know world-class practitioners who each have their own you know, they might see an athlete that hypothetically had the same diagnosis but they all may view the contributing factors to that injury completely differently and have a dramatically different approach therefore to how they then 
go about solving this problem and helping the athletes get better. Um, but something I always see in, I think in all of them as a shared characteristic is the, the kind of confidence and conviction that, you know, they understand that patient's problem or athlete's problem and the confidence that they can help the athlete get better. And I think they get enormous buy-in regardless of dramatically different, um, understandings and, and approaches to the same problem. Well, that's it. And I think certainly in, in my world, in my kind of area of speciality, we've totally neglected it. We've just thought it was a metabolic or mechanical problem that we could solve. But it's it's much more multidimensional than that. Um, and I guess from my perspective, it's good to know because, I, as I said, I spent a lot of time as a practitioner thinking about design and Again, it's obviously important. What we're looking at here is we're not saying one is more important than the other. What we're saying is you need both sides of, of this particular coin. You want to be uh, high on um, quality, technical quality, quality of execution. But you also need to be able to communicate that to the, to the athlete in a way that uh, you know inspires them, fills them with confidence, convinces them that you are the right person to help them to reach their long-term objectives i think that's a really i'm I'm aware of time and i think that's that's probably a a very good pragmatic uh closing point to everything we've we've discussed today um where's you mentioned the course at the beginning but where's the best place for people to find you and then and again where's the best place for people to find the course that you've been working on yeah, well, maybe I'll, I can send a, a link to the course, but it's the University of Limerick and the course is a professional doctorate in performance and in innovation. And it's really, that's what it's designed to do. Practitioners, and it could be, you know, any practitioner, health, education, sport, um, or, you know, kind of maybe mid-career or 10 years in, in the tank and have an idea that they want to explore. Yeah, and if anyone's interested, it'd be great to hear from them. Uh, in terms of where you can find me, uh, I'm I'm on Twitter at Simply Sports Sci. Uh, I'm on Instagram as well. I'm, I am inadequate and uh, in, infrequent in both, but uh, but 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 yeah, I'm there. Brilliant. Well, John, thank you, thank you very much. I've been eyeing you up and getting you on as a guest for a long time, so I really thank you for coming on and, and giving me some time today. My pleasure, Andy. Thanks very much. Big thanks to John for coming on today's show. If you'd like to find the show notes, then please head to informperformance.com. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, then you can find us at at informperformance on Instagram or at informpod for Twitter. Thanks for listening to the Informed Performance Podcast. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.